0: Hi everyone, welcome to Meet the Rocketopolis. I'm Yes Like Rocketopolis.
1: And I am Lance Rocketopolis.
0: And today we're going to talk about kinky rhetoric during the Victorian age. But first, we do have a shout out, a rhetorical shout out to Mill Valley, California. One of my dorm mates at university was from Mill Valley. And the thing I remember most about this person is that she was part of a social group that was really into keeping up with the latest in-crowd slang. And at one point, someone in her clique of friends coined the term sphinxy, referring to an anal sphincter because the word sphincter was used on Wayne's World, a regular bit on Saturday Night Live, and also in the Wayne's World movie. And even though sphincter was used as an insult on Wayne's world, she and her friends decided that it should be used to describe something positive. So you might say something like, look at this sphinxy new bong I got, right?
1: Or it would be really sphinxy if you didn't tear my sphincter with that 12 inch dildo.
0: Totally works. So in this episode, We'll be discussing three types of sexual rhetoric used in the Victorian age, scientific rhetoric, especially as it pertains to gender, rhetoric associated with British colonialism and the British Empire, and the rhetoric associated with a very specific variety of anal sex known as higher sodomy. So the Victorian era was a time of steady progress in the sciences, as well as great popular interest in science.
1: We will see in this episode that during the Victorian era, scientific rhetoric was used in a way to describe the differences between men and women. So we're going to give examples of famous scientists of the time. They would include James Clark Maxwell, a Scottish physicist and mathematician who formulated the classical electromagnetic theory. Charles Darwin was an English naturalist known for his work on his theory of evolution by natural selection. Michael Faraday was an English chemist and physicist. He discovered electromagnetic induction in 1831. It was largely due to his efforts that electricity became practical for use in technology, including some of the devices that we'll be talking about later.
0: And there was also quite a bit of pseudoscience in that time period.
1: Yes, I would agree, but it wasn't necessarily viewed as pseudoscience at that time. For example, mesmerism. Franz Anton Mesmer asserted that the influence of Of planetary forces affected living things and that it affected our health and was the cause of diseases. For him, animal gravity or animal magnetism was some form of universal fluid that he likened to being very much like magnetic fields or electricity. When the flow of those fields is unimpeded in living beings, they are healthy but when it is blocked, illness is the result. Benjamin Franklin led a French investigatory commission on mesmerism in 1784 that denounced it as not passing scientific muster. However, a lot of people were freaked out about mesmerism. If mesmerism worked as advertised, its power imbalance created too much opportunity for abuse. An American newspaper account includes the following. No female in the realm, however high or low her station, would be one day safe from the machinations of the wicked and licentious. In short, the whole foundations of society would be broken up and every fence of virtue and honor would be leveled in the dust.
0: So basically they're saying that if women can be hypnotized so easily that they could be susceptible to like sexual assault in their hypnotic trance and that would just destroy civilization
1: yes exactly right even the men wouldn't have power to stop these people the next pseudoscience is phrenology phrenology involves the measurement of bumps on the skull to predict mental traits Some scientists believe phrenology affirmed European superiority over other races. By comparing skulls of different ethnic groups, it allows for ranking of races from least to most evolved. Gender stereotyping was also common with phrenology. Women whose heads were generally larger in the back with lower foreheads were thought to have underdeveloped organs necessary for success in the arts and sciences, while having larger mental organs relating to the care of children. The last suit of science that I'd like to discuss is hysteria.
0: Yeah, it was considered to be a medical condition in which a woman's uterus somehow detached from its rightful place in her lower abdomen and started wandering around her body.
1: Symptoms included anxiety, shortness of breath, fainting, nervousness, insomnia, irritability, loss of appetite for food or sex, and paradoxically, you know, sexually forward behavior and a, quote, tendency to cause trouble for others. Mm.
0: So basically, the woman's freakouts had nothing to do with sexual repression or being stir crazy from being stuck in the house all the time. Also, Victorians believed that studying math and ancient Greek could actually injure the uterus wherever it was in her body.
1: Yeah, one prescribed remedy was the, quote, rest cure, which involved lots of bed rest and strict avoidance of all physical and intellectual activity. The American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman was prescribed this treatment, found the experience so harrowing that she wrote about it in her story, The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a horror story that maps the slow psychological deterioration of a woman who is forced by her doctor and her husband and her brother to follow this, quote, treatment.
0: The Victorians had all kinds of interesting ideas pertaining to gender and sexuality the existence of sex cells, ova and sperm, was totally unknown until the early 20th century. So Victorian scientists were basically shooting in the dark, so to speak, when it came to the details of how babies were made.
1: Yeah, people of the Victorian era love to theorize about why nature evolved into two distinct sexes. And they theorized that men were considered the active agents who expended energy while women were sedentary, storing and conserving energy.
0: And so this idea of women being anabolic and men being catabolic was used to justify encouraging women to stay home and stay more or less still most of the time while men were out fighting wars and hunting and... Going to the gym.
1: <laughs> yeah, Victorian theorist Herbert Spencer said, quote, the male capacity for abstract reason, along with an attachment to the idea of abstract justice, was a sign of highly evolved life. On the other hand, women's heavy role in pregnancy, menstruation, and child rearing left very little energy for other pursuits. As a result, she had to stay home in order to conserve her energy, while the man needed to go out and hunt and forage and earn a living. But interestingly, there was also a theoretical shift during that time period. Initially, women were seen as weak and innocent with little to no sexual appetite, and therefore there was no blame for her indiscretions, whereas men were sinful, lustful creatures taking advantage of the poor, frail woman. But in the latter half of the 19th century, men started to be seen as slaves to their catabolic nature and purpose and their sexual appetites. So they couldn't be blamed. They were just slaves to their nature. So women needed to be the ones held accountable for any sexual indiscretion.
0: One of the weirdest things about sex in the Victorian era, with all of the sexual repression, There was also the development of new and different types of sex toys, especially sex toys for women. Many of them were not actually referred to as sex toys, but as medical and health-related tools.
1: For example, there was Granville's hammer. It was to cure hysteria. It basically was a 40-pound vibrator that was supposed to anchor the woman's womb. There were even a couple of different coal-powered, steam-driven vibrators that were supposed to relieve pelvic disorders and muscular pain. These were too large even to be purchased for the doctor's office, so they were used mostly at spas. There were also rectal dilators, quote, designed to be a cure for constipation and hemorrhoids and not at all to be used for sexual gratification. Spanking was a large part of the growing kinky practices in the Victorian era London. In the 1840s, roughly 20 upscale flogging brothels existed in London. One of London's most popular dominatrixes, Teresa Berkeley, had what was called a Berkeley horse. It was basically a padded leather spanking bench with holes for the face and genitals. One of her clients wrote a desperate letter offering her a pound sterling for the first blood drawn, two pounds sterling if the blood drawn runs down to my heels, three pounds sterling if my heels are bathed in blood, four pounds sterling if the blood reaches the floor, and five pounds sterling if you succeed in making me lose consciousness.
0: Okay, so that is pretty awesome. And it's a tough act to follow. However, I have no choice but to try. Therefore, we are now going to talk about the rhetoric of sex and gender pertaining to British colonialism and the British Empire. At its height in 1913, the British Empire covered 13.7 million square miles, which is about 24% of the world's land mass, and also ruled over 420 million people, about 23% of the world's human population at that time. Queen Victoria reigned over all of it for 63 years, and we see a lot of triumphalist rhetoric connected to British imperialism and also connected to England's scientific and industrial achievements. In addition to the scientific rhetoric of gender during Victoria's reign, we also see some highly gendered rhetoric pertaining to the empire. Basically, the empire itself is described in very masculine terms, and the colonial subjects are often coded as female. As one scholar put it, Victorian rhetoric generally promoted the notion that the British empire could be described as, quote, a royal phallus in need of a sexual object to penetrate. Interestingly, these tropes that code England as male and basically the rest of the world as female existed long before the Victorian age, even as far back as the early 17th century poet John Donne, who referred to his wife as, my America, my newfound land, my kingdom, safeliest when with one man manned.
1: That reminds me of the ancient Greek and Roman notion of the penetrator being the dominant. So the rhetoric is persisting through the Victorian era.
0: But as the empire grew, so did the number of weird justifications for its existence besides greed and military dominance. And a lot of those justifications relied on Victorian ideas of manliness, like sexual vigor strength, hunting, athleticism, being outside, not being stuck at home. Whereas the colonial subjects of all genders were often coded as feminine or effeminate, lacking manliness. There were also some pretty disturbing sexual ideas connected to British colonialism and its colonial subjects. Female subjects were often depicted as overtly sexual and male subjects were often depicted as either lacking in virility, or gay, or as sexual predators. The great Palestinian-American scholar Edward Said suggested that, quote, a battery of desires, repressions, investments, and projections, unquote, that can be found in colonialist literature, that points to conflict and unrest in the colonies. So here he's connecting literary rhetoric associated with colonialism to psychological stress that's experienced by the colonizers, maybe due to frequent political protests and revolts started by the colonial subjects. Regardless, Saeed's comment about the colonizer's psyche reminds me a lot of kink, or at least my own ideas about kink. It's fair to say that a lot of kinksters do see and experience kink as the sexualization of, among other things, desires, repressions, investments, and projections. The true story of Sarah Bartman, AKA the hot and taut Venus is a particularly grievous example of this kind of rhetoric. Sarah Bartman was the European name given to a woman who was a member of the Koe, Koe people who lived in Southwest Africa. She was kidnapped by colonizers, taken to England, and used in pseudoscientific sideshow displays, mostly to show off her butt, which was in fact much bigger than most European butts. Of course, the size of her butt doesn't make her any more sexual or sexually lascivious than a European woman. But not only was her body sexualized by pseudoscience, but she was also dehumanized by being referred to as some kind of goddess, Venus, the goddess of love, making her into something abstract, a symbol of sexuality. Her body itself literally became a piece of colonial rhetoric. And Sarah Bartman, sexuality, gender, and colonialism are all wrapped into one probably very unwilling human body. And the spectacle around her is really basically an example of non-consensual race play in the form of well-attended exhibitions on the streets of Victorian London.
1: (laughs) Wow, that got my kinky juices flowing.
0: (sighs) It's
1: reminiscent of you describing the DomCon L.A. presenter wanting to recreate the Abu Ghraib scene (laughs) along the same lines.
0: Well, I wouldn't have thought of that myself, but I I do see what you're saying. Um, I mean, it might even be a little too on the nose, as the youngins like to say. Only this time, it's a colonizee, right? The presenter at that session was himself Arabic. Having the fantasy of being colonized physically,
1: yeah, that's what I was thinking of you colonizing me, <laughs> and like you using that kind of rhetoric to dehumanize me. I'd love to be displayed in a cage in a, in public and prevented from covering my metal encased genitals. There could even be like a placard describing me as a mechanically nullified permanent chastity slave.
0: So next up high sodomy. Class in Victorian England was and is similar to class in the United States, aside from the existence of the aristocracy. So there were the aristocrats, the upper middle class, people who today might be referred to as solidly middle class, the middle middle class, people who worked for a living but not too hard, the working class, people who worked harder than the middle class and for less money, and the underclass, the poverty class, people who might be homeless or institutionalized, surviving through panhandling and government payments. They might be petty thieves, streetwalkers. So we're going to talk about what I'll refer to as the intellectual class, which included members of the upper middle class, and the aristocracy. They attended elite colleges like Oxford and Cambridge, and many of them lived very well off of large inheritances of money and property. The type of work they did after college often involved research and scholarship of varying kinds. An example of such a person would be the semi-well-known Victorian scholar, Leslie Stephen. He published books and articles on a wide variety of topics, including various intellectual movements, scientific ethics, various literary topics. He had a kind of a free and wide-ranging career that very few scholars today could even dream of because he was independently wealthy. In 1820, a group of Cambridge students started a secret society known as the Apostles. And it was basically a discussion group where every Saturday evening, they would gather together in someone's nicely appointed dorm room, find a spot near the fireplace on some exotic rug imported from one of the colonies, and listen to one of their members read a paper written specifically for the group. And the paper would probably be on some topic pertaining to some area of philosophy, and then they'd debate on the topic. While enjoying a snack of sardines on toast known as a whale.
1: <laughs> okay. I don't know why. Right.
0: That was that was their snack of choice for those
1: meetings. I, I would enjoy it. Yeah. I frequently have sardines on a bagel.
0: There you go. That makes you special <laughs> and qualified to do all kinds of special things, apparently. So at some point in the eighteen sixties, some member of the apostles coined the term higher sodomy, which they basically defined as a special kind of butt-fucking between men of higher learning and intelligence. And while it was both sinful and disgusting for lower-class men to butt-fuck each other, it was beautiful and sublime for intellectual men to butt-fuck each other, and in fact, significantly more pleasurable than regular old PIV sex. I mean, if you're spending your evening at an elite gentleman's club, enjoying lively conversations about art, literature, philosophy, current events, the last thing you want to do is go home and try to fuck your intentionally repressed, functionally asexual cold fish of a wife. Uh, and I totally get it. I remember being in grad school and going out for a few drinks after class with my fellow students, and sometimes a professor would join us. And these weeknight outings could linger on for hours, partly because none of us wanted to go home to our non-academic partners. And yeah, I can see how someone might think that that's kind of quote-unquote gross, because of the spousal betrayal and the explicit sort of arrogance of the whole thing. But the desire was real. I remember a night when one of my professors finally just told me and a fellow student to just get a room because the sexual tension was getting so thick. Another night, I asked a professor if he would drive me home after class. So he was happy to drive me home. And when he pulled up in front of my house, stared at each other awkwardly for like 20 seconds before I finally got out of the car and went inside and proceeded to argue with my future ex-husband about which one was Beavis and which one was Butthead.
1: That must have been a letdown from that previous stimulating intellectual conversation.
0: Well, that's pretty much the story of my marriage. (laughs) And by the way, that second professor was actually sleeping with several of his students. He ended up marrying one of them and then cheated on her with another student. And this was after I left, but I heard from... uh, from other former students that at one point his wife busted into his classroom and screamed, which one is it? Which one is the slut? Oh, wow. Very classy. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't really like the term sapiosexual, even though it might be an appropriate way to describe what was going on with higher sodomy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Oxford languages defines sapiosexuality as finding intelligence sexually attractive or arousing. and my personal experience, referring to oneself as sapiosexual is usually a clear sign of middling intelligence. Oh, wow. Ouch. Yeah. But while the word was played out years ago in the vanilla world, it's still alive and well on fetlife. More importantly for me, though, It's not so much about how smart someone is, it's more about how they deploy their intelligence in conversation, and also how they use it to make decisions out in the real world. For example, reading and talking about critical theory and other forms of cultural theory takes effort, and it can be fun on a strictly mental level, and it can provide a huge rush for the ego, and that can feel really good. But I find it more interesting, actually, to apply theory to real-world dilemmas, to use it instrumentally in ways that could influence our decisions and our behaviors. I don't know how many of the 19th century apostles actually attempted to practice the philosophies that they were preaching to each other, outside of fucking each other, of course. But I do know that several of Leslie Stevens' children— including Virginia Woolf, Vanessa Bell, and Toby Stephen, and several of their now-famous friends, like John Maynard Keynes, E.M. Forrester, and the philosopher Bertrand Russell, did very purposefully choose to live their lives according to the philosophical writings of several Cambridge apostles. This collection of close friends, lovers, and colleagues are now known as the Bloomsbury Group. And we'll be talking about their ideas about sex, love, and power in the next episode. So thank you very much for joining us today, and have a great week.